everyone, and welcome back to the Entry Level Podcast, where we talk about entry-level experiences in many forms, careers, relationships, business, side hustles, money, travel, and more. Because we really believe if you're always learning and growing, then you will always be entry-level at something. I'm Sarah Dudley, and I'm here with my co-host, Lindsay Bernard. On this week's episode, we are continuing our theme for the month around financial literacy and making better choices around personal finances, debt, investing, and building wealth. With us today to talk about smarter money management is Eric Roberge. Eric is a certified financial planner and the founder of Beyond Your Hammock, a financial planning firm based in our favorite city, Boston. He primarily works with high-achieving professionals to help them achieve financial clarity, make mindful and informed decisions, and use money as a tool to design a life they love, now and in the future. Eric has written for publications like Business Insider and Forbes, in addition to hosting his own podcast, Beyond Finances. He's also been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Market Watch, and the Boston Globe, and has received numerous awards for his work. We're really excited to have Eric here today because I think I speak for many of us when I say money is confusing, especially (laughs) when you actually start to have some. (laughs) So welcome to the show, Eric. Thanks, Sarah and Lindsay for having me on. This is going to be a nice, relaxing money conversation. (laughs) (laughs) On a Saturday morning, too. We're here uh, talking on a Saturday morning. So that's that's awesome. We're excited to have you here. Eric, can can you start a little bit just by sharing with us a little bit more about your background, how Beyond Your Hammock came about? And I'm always curious about this. Is there any meaning behind the name? Yes. The answer to that is yes. <laughs> My background is that I graduated with a degree in finance from Babson College, which is local in Wellesley, Massachusetts. And then jumped straight into mutual funds with some bigger banks in Boston, State Street Bank and JP Morgan. But it wasn't until 2007 that I transitioned outside of the corporate world into a more client-facing role as a financial advisor. And just at that time is when the market started crashing back in 2008. So that was really a bad time to be moving into the, the world of financial planning. But it turned out to be a really great experience for me because dealing with times of struggle like that is really helpful to become a better financial planner. Um, And then, you know, five years later, after working through the initial trials and tribulations of a financial planner, I launched my business. And I launched my business because I was continually told that I couldn't work with a younger clientele. It had to be older. They had to have a lot of money. And it just wasn't, I wasn't vibing with that kind of thing. So I wanted to develop a business that could work with younger people that were more my age, that have a lot of years to go, and that could take full advantage of their money to make a great life for themselves. So that's why I launched Beyond Your Hammock. The name itself, the name came from my desire to not be like everybody else. So that was a very key factor in the name. I couldn't be Robert's Wealth Management or Eric's Investment Advisory Group. I wanted to be something different so people would question what I do before assuming what I do. And the word beyond is just something that I really like because it's, it's, for me, it's beyond societal norms, beyond the everyday. And that really allowed me to 
to just build my business around thinking from a different perspective, not just a linear life that you work and then retire and then you die. It's you can live this great life beyond your hammock. And, and that's where it really came from. Yeah, I love that. I think a lot of times when you start thinking of the future and what reti- retirement looks like, is it that you'll have just enough to get by or are you really going to be able to enjoy that time and, and do more? And I like the idea that you were eager to work with people, younger people, not just people who already had established wealth, but helping people who are trying to get to that point. Or I think a lot of millennials and the generations coming after us, they don't really teach you how to manage money in school or teach you those skills. And I think it's becoming more prominent that they do, but it's one of those things that I think there there was or maybe still is a, a big gap for. So it's exciting that yeah. there's people doing it. And when you were just kind of going through how this came about and you mentioned and you said that you were being told you have to work with older people who have more money, big different clientele. And when you decided to make this target, the younger generation, what were some of the challenges you were seeing from that younger generation and even yourself when you started that really made you think, no, I can, there's a market for this, or I could build around these, these issues or these problems? That's a great question. For me, I mean, transitioning out of a, a job as an employee, which I did twice, once from JP Morgan to become a financial advisor, but then I joined a financial advisory group at one point that was paying me a salary. So when I switched again to start my business, I lost that salary and cash flow was a major concern. So now I'm working as a waiter just to make ends meet so I could build my business. And I knew that a lot of younger people, because they're not at the peak earning years yet, they have cash flow struggles and they don't know how to budget and they really can't comprehend actually saving anything. So that was a major thing that I saw that I could help with for younger people right off the bat. Yeah, that's a good point. The other thing was that when it comes to financial planning, the the baseline, what, what people know in the industry for financial planning is, okay, let's make sure you're ready for retirement. Now let's transition into retirement and roll over your 401k into an IRA. And now we can make sure you don't run out of money and we'll deal with social security and Medicare and estate planning. That's great and important stuff, but that's not the stuff that younger people were dealing with. And what their advice was, from advisors that work with older people was, well, younger people, all they have to do is save in their 401k in their target date retirement fund. And then when they have money, they can come back to us. That is just so backwards to me that we can help them get there faster if we just provide better resources. So that's what I was looking to do too. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good point about the resources and the advice. Yeah. When you're younger. Oh, yeah. Because I think, like I was saying, it, it's so lacking. I feel like by the time you get to a point where you can do anything, then it's like, okay, now there's so much information. It's like information overload. You don't know what to, to trust or what to do. It seems like there's so so much you can do. So one question for you, Eric, when, when clients come to you or people come to you to work with you, what are some of the first kind of questions that they ask or what it, what is, you know, what the first thing that you ask them when they come to you? Well, my, the people that come to me typically are, because the, the type of advice that you give somebody is very much related to where they are in their financial life. So my typical clients that I'm working with on a one-on-one basis are making six figures. Oftentimes, households are making 250000 or more. So cash flow is there, and it's not a, how do I make more money? It's more about, how do I take advantage of this money? So people are coming to me saying, 
I have saved a good amount and I know how to save, but I really don't know how much I should be spending on certain things, where my money should go from a savings perspective. Should it be invested? Am I wasting my time just keeping it in a bank? So all these things start to come up. And what it really comes down to is a ton of really important things in life, which means that they're all competing priorities and people just don't know which ones to focus on first and what are the most important things to do right now. Yeah, I, I would echo that statement. <laughs> I think it's like, it's just so, it's difficult to know, should I be saving? Should I be paying off debt? Should I be, well, I think student loans is probably a big question that comes up a lot. If people have a lot of student loans, is that something, I feel like the advice you often hear is pay those off as quickly as you can. But I've also heard the opposite. You know, yep. Don't pay them off because maybe if you invest the money, you're going to earn more on that money than the interest that you're being charged for your loans. So, that's, that's what I was told. Do first, do you, <laughs> do you have an opinion on that at all? I do. When it, when it comes to debt in general, I mean, you, you touched on it there. It's the key factor, one of the key factors, the most important one probably is the interest rate. So if you have a low interest rate and in the the middle ground that I usually use is 5%. So I say if, if someone has a debt that is lower than a 5% interest rate and they will, instead of paying off that debt, save and invest that money and that investment could earn more than 5%, then maybe, not always, but maybe it makes more sense to not pay that off too quickly and start to save and invest for the future. But certainly if it's a credit card or it's something that is significantly more than 5%, then it's almost certain that you should probably try to get rid of that as quickly as you can. Yeah, I think, I mean, it makes sense when you think about it that way. I think in the general information that's out there, you just hear you pay off debt, pay off debt, pay off debt. And nobody nobody ever stops to, to explain it like you did and say, well, maybe maybe not so fast. <laughs> but, well, I, I, think it's, I think it's really interesting because I remember when I was starting in my career, I had student loans. And I was investing in a 401k and I was told and I invested in a stock purchase plan with my company for a savings account because I knew I, I wasn't making a lot when I first started and I wanted to make sure that I was at least putting some money away. And so that I think that was really good advice that I got early on about making sure that I at least was saving something. But when I fast forward it to, to exactly what you said, when you start making more money and if you you know you get into the six figures, I met with a financial advisor and Sarah, I think you remember me probably saying this. I was relatively younger, but I didn't I didn't know what to do. I'm like, what do I should I keep go like should I raise my rates in my 401k like the percentage I'm putting in? Should I max out the stock purchase? Should I play the stock market? And I remember when I sat down with my finance, the first, I got recommended a financial advisor from a coworker. And he goes, I love meeting with sales reps. I also love meeting with people your age. And I thought that's funny why, because I don't have enough, a lot of money for you to play with if you want to. And he said, well, let me ask you, let me ask you two questions. He said, when do you want to retire? And he goes, how much money do you spend in a week? And I remember sitting there thinking, I have zero idea. I've never thought about either of those two questions. So I think that really put it in perspective um, for me when I, about the, what you mentioned about the cash flow thing, because I realized that even though I was saving a lot of money in my stock purchase plan and in my 401k, I could easily start a really good savings account and a cash flow 
that just by making little tweaks. And so I'm curious, do you see that a lot with your new clients? And what are some of the, what are some examples of some things you've worked with clients on who after your first meeting that they come sit down with you? Well, initially when we, we work together, it's all about organization. So we can ground ourselves in our current financial reality. Like what is going on today? A lot of times people talk about their goals and their dreams, but they don't often check in with where they are today. And, and just like if you're trying to drive across country, you kind of have to know where you're starting from yeah. in order to know how to get to where you're going. So it's a really key thing to say, all right, here is what my balance sheet looks like. I have this much in savings. I have this much investments. I have this much in debt. And on the cash flow side, I make this much money and I spend this much money so I can save this much money. Because then we can start to just design a program using that functionality to achieve goals that are 12 months out because I want to buy a car, five years out because I want to buy a house, 20 years out because I want to save for college for my kids, or, or 40 years out because I'm trying to retire. You know, All those things come into play, but each strategy is specifically designed for the people that are trying to achieve yeah. various things. We don't know what you want to do until we talk about what you want to do. One thing that I've I've heard about a fair bit, just because one of my prior managers that I worked with was really in, involved in this community, the FIRE community, which I think it's about, it's about retiring early. I can't think of the exact acronym right now, although you probably know it, Eric. <laughs> do you get people coming you, to you now? I, I feel like this is a movement that's growing a bit. Do you Can you explain a little bit about what FIRE is? And do you get a lot of people coming to you asking you about it now? Yes. So FIRE means financial independence, retire early. Yeah. So it, it's a very, it's a complex conversation that actually we have a, 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 one of our podcast episodes that's going to be released soon is, is on this type of financial freedom conversation. And it's, it's a really interesting one because most people in FIRE don't necessarily want to retire in the traditional sense. They're really more focused on the financial independence side. And financial independence is basically saying, and this is a, you know, a definition that I like to use, is that you can live your life in a way that doesn't require you to make the decisions for your life based solely or most importantly because of some income or financial reason. Right? So if you have enough money set aside, you might not have to take a job that's paying you X amount when you, can, when you only need Y because you have the money available, which means that you may not have to do a job that you are forced into. You can actually do something that you actually truly love to do and you're passionate about. So a lot of the fire people are trying to save a bunch of money to run away from their corporate career to start to do something that they love, which I think is a good goal because that sounds great, right? Why wouldn't you want to do something you love for your life instead of forcing your way through a job you hate? But I think there's a lot of confusion around what that actually means. And there's a lot of risks that go along with leaving a job too early because you think, well, I made so much money, so now I can take 4% out and never run out. There's yeah. so much complexity to that. And I think people have to be aware of that before they commit to something Yes, that it probably sounds really amazing, right, to people. Oh, I'm going to retire early. I'm not going to have to work another day in my life. I'll lay in my hammock and <laughs> read a book and be done with it. But it sounds like the, the people who really make it work are probably more what you described as opposed to people who are just ready to be done doing anything at 40 years old type of thing. So Sarah wrote an interesting question to you when we were prepping for the episode that said, if, if someone's making six figures, how should they, how much should they be saving? So I'm thinking if, if I came to you as a new client, like, is it okay if I give you like a quick scenario? Like I make a hundred K on the dot, I come to you for services. 
I have I have a 401k that I'm maxing out that I was told to max out. So I think it's what 16% now, or you, or I, I guess it depends on how much you're making. Nineteen thousand um, dollars flat. Nineteen thousand, yeah, nineteen thousand dollars. And I don't have there's no stock purchase plan, and I pay rent of two thousand dollars a month. Like all, my bills included are two thousand dollars a month. We'll just I mean I know it's a lot more these days, but we'll just use two thousand for sake of the scenario. How would you start the conversation with me or answer that question? How much um, should you be saving at six figures? Well, the first thing I'd want to know is what are we saving for? Because there's the difference. I want to buy a house. Okay. For general guidelines, I like to see if people are making six figures, they have cash flow. There's no reason why you can't save money if you're making six figures. And if you can't, you should probably reduce your expenses because you're probably paying for an overpriced place to live and you're going out to dinner too many times. But what I say is, (laughs) that's very, in in Boston, that's kind of how it goes. What I say is that 15 to 20% of your savings should be going to long-term. doesn't necessarily mean retirement, but like 10, 20 or more years out, that should be happening. And then if you want to save more for shorter term things like a down payment for a house, well, then we get to add on top of that. So people that are serious about saving money, at least 20% is, is the baseline, right? But more like 25, 30. And then it starts to be about, well, how quickly do you want to get to where you want to go? Because a person that wants to retire early, you probably need to save 40, 50, 60% of your yeah. money to get there. My personal goal, Kaylee and I, my wife, we try to save 30 plus percent of our gross income every single year. And we think that is a good amount. It's it's not easy, but I think it provides us enough to be able to live today, but still plan in a way that allows us to have that freedom of of choice down that's, the road. That's great. I think yeah. another thing too, and it's kind of related, I I would assume, is the idea of lifestyle creep. So I think as especially people in their 20s and 30s, as they start to build more wealth, as they start to make more money, it's, oh, now I don't need to live with four roommates. Now I can get my own place. And then suddenly your rent doubles. And it's like, oh, like now I don't need to drive a beatable car. Now I can buy a brand new Beamer, (laughs) that type of thing. And so slowly but surely, your your expenses almost creep up alongside your your income as it it increases. And, And I think a lot of people, they don't necessarily know when to stop that lifestyle creep or if there is a certain point where you should stop so that you can reach yeah. your financial goals. Is this another thing that that you warn against or do you support the idea of living well today, but provided you're saving and you're doing all the other right things? <laughs> really, both. Both things because lifestyle creep is real. It's one of the major factors that prevent people from growing their money over time. And I think it's something that people have to be aware of. It's very easy to be at $30,000 a year, which is what I made when I graduated, and just get by. And then in a couple of years, make $42,000 a year, $44,000 a year, I think I was making, and just get by. So what happened between the two times? I mean, you could have kept your spending the same because you were doing it, yet you've increased that. And I think there's a certain point in time when you can stop increasing that. Maybe you're living like super below what you think is reasonable in the beginning because your income is so low. And then you get to a point where you're like, all right, I'm good with this kind of living. And now if I make more money, I'm going to save more money. So you just always want to keep that gap between 
how much you spend and how much you make. And I think the best way to do that is to not focus on saving a certain dollar amount, but focus on saving a percentage of your income. Because that way, as your income increases, your savings rate automatically increases, which means the dollar or the savings rate stays the same, but the dollar amount increases and you keep that expense level low because you've already taken out the money that you're saving. Taking out savings first is key. So you don't have that lifestyle creep happen unless you choose. Yeah, I think I've seen that in in my own personal life. Like my 401k money, it comes out of my paycheck. I don't even see it. I don't even consider it as part of my paycheck, right? Because it comes out before I even can touch it. But then when it comes to real savings that I need to actively take out of my paycheck and put away and not touch again, that feels harder because it's accessible. It's it's not something it's part of it's part of the money that I get as potential play money. And so I think you probably see this a fair bit where people, you know, if they don't see it first, it's like not even part of, it's not even on their radar. They know they can't touch it. And so is that an approach that you try to take with people, like make it come out automatically? Yeah. That's what I do. That's what I try to do. Like don't see it because that's why I do the stock purchase whenever I can, because regardless of how you're usually buying the stock at a, from the company at a lower rate and you don't, the money goes right into your stock purchase account and any time, I mean, you may have to pay taxes on it depending on, but any time you actually do need it for something, you can pull it out and cash in your share. So that always helped me with Sarah, to your point, not seeing anything without that stock purchase. I wouldn't have been able to get my car that I needed. I wouldn't have probably been able to buy that first house or anything because of that whole theory you just said. I have to not be able to see I think, it. I think our generation has a problem with instant gratification. <laughs> One question, Eric, for I you. I think we've maybe we've talked about it a little bit here, but for people in their 20s, even 30s, is there kind of a negative connotation around building wealth? This idea that you have expendable money. I feel like when you when you said the sum, 250000 for a household, for some people listening, that probably feels like a big sum of money. And is there, it's, is there almost like a negative connotation where it's like, oh, like you're on another level. Like you, you're not the common person. You're not the average American. There's almost a negative connotation when people are like, no, I, I save. I've been saving for many years. I, I, I do things the way you're supposed to do them. Do you feel a little bit of negativity around that concept? Well, I can, when it comes to people that I'm dealing with internally, like with my clients, I don't think that's there because they're in a position where they're they're feeling good about their money a lot of times. Although a lot of times they're stressed about things, but I do think that they're in general that there is a negative negative connotation to money. A lot of you hear the things when you're growing up, like money doesn't grow on trees, money is the root of all evil, like things like this are thrown into your brain as a child, and then you start to believe those things, whether you are actively believing them or subliminally believing them behind the scenes they're built in. So you have this money mindset about what it means to deal with money. And I think that's a major factor in whether people are successful with it or not, because they might be spending money. They don't even know why they're spending it, but they just do it. And it turns out it's because of something they believed when they were two or five or whatever. Yeah. Stuff the money in the mattress type of thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I think it's so it's, it comes down to the fact that and, and I think why I'm good at speaking to people like this is because I didn't come from a rich family. I mean, I wasn't poor by any means. I think we we're middle class and I got to do the things that I wanted to do, but I couldn't do them in extravagance and we didn't travel a bunch and do all these things. So when I got out of school, I wasn't being helped by my parents anymore. So that was on me. Although, yes, I do agree that I was privileged by my growing up in a certain family 
going to a certain college and providing me with the skills and education I needed to then launch. But at that point, I still wasn't making money and I had to build it from scratch. So I think it's our own responsibility to a certain extent to save for money or save for things. And it doesn't happen all at once. It's a very much a long-term save a little bit consistently over time. And that compound effect, which a lot of people cannot grasp, the fact that your money can make money and then that interest on the money that you made can make more money and it really starts to accelerate, that is real. And if you just do a little bit of saving and make sure that that money is making money in an investment account, you're really going to see results down the road. It's just not going to be instant gratification. And I, so, I have a que- so I have a question. I make a choice not to play the stock market and invest in that type of and, and do that. I do have a financial advisor, but I the, what I feel about investments in the stock market is that it's a full to me. It seems like a full time job. Like if I was going to really use the money that I'm earning to invest in certain stocks and things like that, I would want to be fully aware and watch it. And and so from my perspective, that's why I've never really invested in a lot of stock. I invest, I've invested in real estate and real estate type things, and that's totally separate. But what do you, what's your opinion on investments? Like, what do you tell your clients right away who say, Hey, maybe I should, I've saved, maybe I should invest in the stock market. I know that I, I, I use my 401k and I invest kind of in the fortune 500, which I know is a very safe, I know it's a very safe market, but you know, what do you, what do you suggest? Oh, there's so much in there. So much in that conversation right there. It really it was, it was funny that you led the conversation by saying, play the stock market as if it was like a roulette wheel. And I think a lot of people think that about the stock market. It's a gamble. So I don't want to gamble with my money and therefore I shouldn't put my money in the market. That is not a great thought, but it comes from just where would we learn that it's not a great thought? And it's just not accurate because if you are setting yourself up with a diversified portfolio, and I would argue that investing in the S&P 500 is risky because it's only US large cap stocks. So if we're looking at a world of investments, that's only about I don't know, 40% of the entire stock market. So you're missing out on 60% of things internationally, emerging markets, bonds, and other things. So I do think that setting up a diversified portfolio by choosing some US, some international, some bonds makes it so that you're not seeing your money jump up and down when you look at the Dow Jones and that's jumping up and down. So there is a systematic way to invest that although there is risk because you could lose money, as long as you have a long-term perspective and don't react emotionally when markets drop or increase and just keep that same steady strategy, you're going to do well for yourself. It's something that and this, and I think that like you, I think this is an emotional, almost an emotional reaction for me because I'm fine with my financial advisor and my fidelity or whoever's doing my 401k to use the money in my 401k to maximize it and and do the right thing. There's something about my own savings though that's not tied to my 401k investing that is like a hard thing for me to get over to your point to play which I know is wrong what I just said, but I think that's like why I think of it as a game. Like there's some type of emotional block for me to say I, I just can't see myself like taking this money that that's not part of the 401k and doing it. And I think you're right. I absolutely, it's an education thing and it's a knowledge thing for I, sure. I want to touch on something there too. And I, I agree that what you said, it's not abnormal. And I think a lot of people feel that way. Yet, when you were talking about investing in your or saving in your employee stock purchase plan, that is a one stock investment. And 
that is probably the most risky thing that you could do if you keep the money in there because it is one stock. It relies on your company itself doing well. And if your company doesn't do well, you lose the money. At the same time, your income drops maybe because you get fired because the company's doing bad. So there's a lot of risk tied up in your business. I don't think that it's a bad thing to use the ESPP, the Employee Stock Purchase Plan. I think it's a great vehicle. I just think there's a lot more risk than people realize when they're using it. So Eric, it sounds like you know this stuff really well. You're obviously an expert in this space, but has there ever been a time where you've had a financial blunder? Maybe you didn't take your own advice and what happened in that situation? Or maybe you started out kind of not doing the right things. Has there been any scenario like that? Yeah, I think it was it was before I knew what advice I was supposed to be giving. I knew that I shouldn't have credit card debt. That was my mom drilled that into me. Don't have credit card debt. You can use a credit card, just don't keep the debt. I had student loans when I came out of school. But the biggest thing for me was that I didn't start saving in my retirement account at work for, I don't know, maybe five years. And I don't, I can't even tell you if there was a matching contribution from my employer for the plan itself because I was not saving in it. So that in itself was huge because even if it was just $100 a month or $50 a month, that would have been really great now. So I didn't do that. Number two, and this is very closely tied to the major, the biggest blunder, is when I left JP Morgan in 2007, I had done a fantastic job saving money. I think I had $25,000 sitting in a bank account because I was saving a lot of money. When I left, I didn't make a plan and I was leaving a, a salary job for a job where I was going to be making fees and commissions, but I had to develop all of that from scratch. I didn't set a budget. And immediately when I got into this job, I took my money and I invested it in a, a real estate deal that was so illiquid to the point where it's still invested today in this real estate deal out in Arizona, and I can't even access the money. So not having a budget when I'm making no money and how, how long could my money even last? And then taking the savings that I had available to use while I wasn't making money and sticking it in something I couldn't touch. Dumb move. Huge. Well, it sounds like you've uh, learned mistake. from that experience at least, right? That, that's the most important thing is probably that we, we learn from our money errors. The best thing to, I mean, I'm commission-based as well, but we were always 50-50, so half salary, half commission. So the saying that they teach you is live within your base like live within your means. So yeah. that was like the number, that was like the most helpful thing that taught me how to deal with the commissions and the planning and things like that. Cause oh, you man. really do, you really are like you're a prisoner to it at some, sometimes in throughout the year. That's where lifestyle creep comes in majorly because I see yep. that a lot with my clients that are on a commission base, whether it's tech or biotech or whatever else they're doing, they can make a significant amount of money, but their lifestyle is based on them making a significant yep. amount. And if they have a bad year, everything crumbles. So if you can actually base your, your fixed expenses or the stuff you have to pay for every month on your base, and then that frees up the extra to use for choice spending or and or saving, you can really do well for yourself in that scenario. Absolutely. I agree with you. I, this was this was a great conversation, by the way. I really I've written down notes like taking all of you like so many learned so many things. So I really I really appreciate you coming on and, and talking with us about this. And I absolutely I and I know Sarah you're gonna feel the same would want to have you on again to do to definitely do a couple follow up episodes. But Eric, as we mentioned to you, we like to do a fun segment at the end of each episode to so everyone can kind of get to know each of us a little bit better. And Sarah and I thought 
because of our conversation today around finance, and we know we read in your bio that you like to travel, we were thinking of we could all share maybe a destination trip or a place vacation that we're that we want to go that we're kind of planning for saving for to your point something that you're looking forward to so i don't know sarah do you want to maybe kick us off sure i can start so one thing well besides lindsay and i are taking a trip to jamaica in a couple Ooh. months so that, but that's already paid for so that doesn't count <laughs> but uh, the other one i so uh, 10 years ago now i studied abroad in australia lindsay did too and but we were in different universities so while while i was there i met a group of girls who are still some of my best friends today and so what we've been trying to do is plan like a 10 year reunion back in australia in the fall so because four of us were were scattered across the U.S. We, we're, we're all from the U.S., but we all studied abroad in Australia. And so we're all kind of in different situations in life. So we're trying to figure out how we can all make it work financially and with schedules and all of that to get us all back in Australia in the fall. So it's kind of a, a pricey flight. It's going to be kind of a pricey trip. So we're trying to figure out how we can make that work for all of us to get back there together. So that's my big one. Nice. What about you, Eric? Well, I I do like to travel. You're right. And I think that a lot of, I mean, a lot of my clients, one of their shorter term goals is travel. That's an annual thing that we build into our our budgets to travel because we know it's coming. It's not a surprise when we come to November and it's travel time. We know it's already happening. So what what we're doing, actually, we, we got married in June of 2018 and didn't take our official honeymoon yet. So we have in the process of planning, we bought the tickets already for the, the flights, but in the process of planning our honeymoon, which is going to be actually to Greece, coincidentally, Sarah, uh, you know, before. Um, so we're going to be doing that in May and we're going to be there for probably, I think, eight nights. So we're looking forward to that now. We did actually save money for this trip on going from like way back, but it's one of those things that we have a dollar amount in our budget from a spending perspective that ends up being saved for travel because we don't That's travel great. every month, but the the money is there when we need it when we do travel. That's great. That's a good idea. Good for you. What about, what about you, Lindsay? Well, it's funny. I have something uh, some, something similar to you. So by the way, we don't talk about our answers before we do this episode, but um, so I, as Sarah mentioned, I also studied abroad in Australia, but that was 2008. One of my best friends from high school, she, her family was actually from Australia and her dad was in the military. And I, I don't know the full story, but somehow ended up in our, becoming a citizen. This is a long time ago, like becoming a citizen, moving over, being in our military. And so that brought her to America when she was, I think, 10 or 12. And so she ended up going back to Australia for, for college and met her fian- now fiance and is getting married over there in uh, Queensland, which is actually where I studied abroad and in 2020. But the few of us that are going, even though I've been there, I'm looking forward to going back and doing the trip as an adult, I like to kind of say, because when we're when you're broke in college living, it, the trips and the traveling that we did in Australia is going to be a lot different compared to the trip that we want to take in 2020. And so we're starting to plan that out because we do want to see some of the other countries around and it's just going to be a completely different trip. And I'm excited to see, experience Australia and that side of the world, how it's different and some of the different things that we can do now as opposed to what I could do when I was in college. So 
just from, from a food perspective, from a restaurant perspective, it's a lot different going from a broke college kid to now just so I'm excited to see. So we pretty much have the same same idea, Sarah. So that's uh, my big one we're looking into for 2020. I, yeah, Lindsay and I end up traveling together a lot. <laughs> sometimes by chance, sometimes on purpose. <laughs> yeah, this is by chance. So no, but that's mine and uh, I'm looking forward to it as well. So I think this was good and this actually gave me some good ideas for that. So Eric, again, this was great. I think it's going to be a big hit for our for our listeners. So I really, really appreciate you taking the time on a Saturday and we know you're really busy and coming on and doing this with us. Oh, you're welcome. This was a really great conversation. You guys know how to have an interview that actually sounds like a nice conversation versus just like bullet point questions. So happy to be back whenever you need me. <laughs> Thank you so awesome. much. Thank you. And, and where can people find you, Eric, if they're looking to get more information on you? Well, two places. Firstly, my website, which is www.beyondyourhammock.com. Uh, you'll find my business and what I do for clients there. But we just also launched the podcast. So we we're on iTunes as of Wednesday, which is if you search Beyond Finances, you'll find the podcast, which is really where money and life meet. I'm not going to talk about information and complex strategies and things you can Google. We're going to talk about real life stuff. So excited for that. Subscribing that great. Right? I am uh, yeah. subscribing right now. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, for those listening, you can always find us on Instagram at Entry Level Podcast. So thanks, everyone. Have a great afternoon.